Hi everyone, this is Cassie and you are listening to Wine and True Crime. I want to say a massive thank you because this week we hit 500 downloads, which is amazing. We were so happy when we saw that number and we cannot wait to see it carry on rising. If you would like to help us out just a little bit more, get to Apple Podcasts, give us a rate, give us a review, subscribe if you haven't already. Each one of those actions helps us to get our name out there, gets more people seeing our podcast, helps people to find us and enjoy what you're listening to. Thank you so much once again. This time, I'm coming across to the US and I'm going to bring you today the case of the Radium Girls. Hey partners, I'm Denisha. And I'm Dana. And we are the host of the new podcast called Partners in Crime, where we discuss true crime, paranormal, and the weird. Join us on your daily adventures, whether you're working out, driving, chilling with a friend, and if you're brave enough, just before you go to bed. Like, subscribe, leave a review, and check us out. Bye. Bye. U.S. Radiation Corporation, which from now on I will call the USRC, was originally called the Radium Luminous Material Corporation, and they extracted and purified radium from carnitite ore to produce luminous paints. They marketed these paints under the brand name Undark. The ore was mined in Paradox Valley in Colorado and other Undark mines in Utah. When they obtained a defence contract from the military, they were a major supplier of radioluminescent watches to the troops. The hottest new gadget in the early 1920s was a wristwatch with a glow-in-the-dark dial. One advertisement bragged, made possible by the magic of radium. It was the latest miracle substance. Radium was being sold in tonics and drinks as well as beauty products with claims such as it would extend people's lives, it would enhance sex drives, it would magnify your beauty, and doctors were using it to treat everything from colds to cancer. The Radium Dial Company was established in Ottawa, Illinois in 1922 in the town's former high school. Like the USRC, the purpose of the company was to paint dials for clocks. Their largest client was the West Cox Corporation in Peru, Illinois. They also hired young women to paint the dials, just like USRC in New Jersey and another plant in Waterbury, Connecticut. An estimated 4,000 workers were hired by corporations in the US and Canada to paint watch faces with radium. Most of these were young women, as they had smaller hands which was perfect for the small painting that they had to do. At USRC, each painter mixed her own paint in a small crucible and then used a camel hair paintbrush to apply it onto the dial. The painters were paid a penny and a half per dial and were expected to paint 250 dials per day. 
The brushes tended to lose shape after a couple of strokes, so the painters were encouraged by their supervisors to point the brush with their lips after every couple of strokes. This was the lip dip paint technique. With each sharpening of the point, the girls would ingest a little radium. But like we said before, that wasn't a bad thing in them days. They thought it was a new miracle substance, so they didn't mind. Although the girls were encouraged to be in close contact with the radium, the owners and the scientists carefully avoided any exposure to it themselves. People had died of radium poisoning before the first dial painter ever picked up her brush. The chemists at the plant used lead screens, masks and ivory tip tongs. The men at the companies would wear lead aprons and still the dial painters were never allowed any protection or warned against the dangers. The first professionals to see problems arising among the dial painters were dentists. The women started to experience dental pain, lesions, ulcers and loose teeth. Tooth extractions failed to heal, anemia, bone fractures and necrosis of the jaw followed soon after. The necrosis is now known as radium jaw. Another side effect of radiation poisoning was the suppression of menopause and sterility. To make it worse, while people were investigating the girls worsening health, the girls would be subjected to x-rays which subjected them to additional radiation. US Radium and other watchdial companies rejected claims that the workers were suffering from exposure to radium and for some time it is reported that some doctors, dentists and researchers complied with the request from the companies not to release their data or findings. I'm going to give a trigger warning now as I'll be discussing some of the girls and some of the things that they suffered with and they are graphic and they are horrible to hear. On April 10th 1917, just four days after two of her brothers had gone to fight in World War I, 18 year old Grace Fryer started work as a dial painter for USRC in New Jersey. She wanted to do her bit to help the war effort. Dial painting paid more than three times the average factory job wage and gave the girls financial freedom. The girls would tell their family and friends to go for the job and it was common to see whole sets of siblings working together painting the dials. Before they were ever dubbed the Radium Girls, they were dubbed Ghost Girls, as by the time they finished their shifts, they themselves would glow in the dark. They would wear their good dresses to work so they would glow at dance halls and they would decorate their nails, teeth and skin with the paint to glow even more. May Cubberley, who had taught Grace a lip point, remembered asking the manager, Mr Savoy, if it would hurt you. He replied that it wasn't dangerous and they didn't need to be afraid. In 1922, one of Grace's colleagues, Molly Magia, had to quit her job as she had become very sick. It all started with an aching tooth, so she went to the dentist. The tooth was pulled, but then the next tooth started hurting, and that also had to be extracted. But the wounds never healed. They instead formed it into ulcers that seeped constantly, giving her foul breath. She then started suffering from agonising aches in her limbs to the point that she couldn't walk. When she went to the doctors, he thought it was rheumatism. 
and he sent her home with aspirin. The mind just boggles. Aspirin. By May of 1922, Molly had lost most of her teeth and her entire lower jaw, the roof of her mouth and even parts of her ears were reportedly one large abscess. She returned to her dentist who delicately prodded at her jawbone when suddenly it broke under the pressure of his fingers. Without needing an operation, the dentist was able to remove her entire lower jaw by lifting it out. On the 12th of September 1922, the strange infection that had been destroying Molly's body spread to the tissues of her throat. Unfortunately, it destroyed her jugular vein and at 5pm that day she hemorrhaged so quickly nobody could stop it. She was 24 years old. Her death certificate listed syphilis as her cause of death as the doctors had no clue what could have caused it. And what makes matters worse is this is the excuse that the company started using to help their case. A year later, 50 women who had worked at the plant were ill and a dozen had died. The companies urged medical professionals to attribute the workers' death to other causes. And like I said before, to smear the reputation of the women looking for help and to discredit them from lodging a complaint, medical professionals diagnosed them with syphilis, which was a notorious STI at the time. USRC commissioned an expert to look into the rumoured link between the dial painting and the women's deaths because of the gossip that wouldn't go away. Unlike their own in-house research, this study was independent and a link was confirmed. The president of the firm was furious and paid for new studies that would publish the exact opposite conclusion. When the Department of Labour began investigating, he lied about the verdict the original study gave. In November 1928, Dr. Sabin Avon Sochoke died. I really hope I pronounced that right, by the way. I'm very sorry if I didn't. He was the inventor of radium dial paint, and his death made him the 16th known victim of poisoning of radium paint. The radiation affected his hands, not the jaw, but the circumstances of his death would eventually help the radium girls in court. Around the time that Molly's jaw had been removed, Grace Fryer was also having trouble with her jaw and suffering pains. Her spine eventually crushed on itself and she had to wear a steel back brace. Grace decided to sue but unfortunately it took two years to find a lawyer willing to fight against the USRC. After finding Raymond Berry, the litigation process moved slowly. It's believed that the corporations were trying to purposely drag their heels so that the girls would die before it got to court. The women's biggest challenge was proving the link between their illnesses and the radium they had slowly been ingesting. Because the corporations had hidden the results of their findings, it made it so much harder for the girls and they were also facing the discrediting rumours the corporations were throwing around as well against them. In 1925, a doctor named Harrison Martland invented a test that could prove once and for all that radium had poisoned the women. He explained that the ingested radium had settled into the women's bodies and was now emitting constant destructive radiation that was boring holes inside them, making their bones look like honeycomb. 
those bones had also began to glow. Most women discovered they had radium poisoning when she would catch sight of herself in a mirror in the middle of the night. She would glow, an eerie glow. Unfortunately, Dr. Martland had also discovered there was no way of removing the radium from the women, essentially sealing their fate. Grace kept the women banded together, saying, quote, It is not for myself I care. I am thinking more of the hundreds of girls to whom this may serve as an example. End quote. The Radium Girls also had to compete with the Statue of Limitations that stated any victims of occupational poisoning had to bring their legal cases within two years, but unfortunately most girls didn't start sicken until at least five years had passed since they started working. But Grace was a daughter of a union delegate and she remained determined to bring USRC down. At their first appearance in court on January 1928, Two women were bedridden and none of them were able to raise their arms to take an oath. The five painters, Grace Fryer, Edna Hussman, Catherine Schaub and sisters Quinta MacDonald and Albina Larice were the women dubbed the Radium Girls. Unfortunately, by this time the girls had been given months to live and they knew the companies would keep dragging on until they were gone and no longer able to fight back. Happy knowing that the profile of radium and its effects had been raised to the masses, the case was settled in the autumn of 1928 and the settlement for each of the radium girls was $10,000 and a $600 per year annuity plus $12 a week for the rest of their lives, as well as all medical and legal expenses incurred would also be paid for by the company. Employees at Radium Dial began showing symptoms of radium poisoning from 1926. They were unaware of the hearings and trials in New Jersey. Radium Dial authorised tests and physicals to determine the toxicity level of the radium paint, but the company never made these records known to its employees or made the results known. As a half-hearted measure, the company brought in glass-pointed brushes to stop the girls having to put the brush in their mouths. Unfortunately, as the girls were paid per dial and the glass brushes slowed down their productivity, they went back to using the camel hair brushes. When the legal suits appeared in local newspapers, the workers were told that the radium was safe and that the illnesses were caused by viral infections. A woman named May Keane was hired in 1924 at a factory in Waterbury. She remembers the paint tasting awful and gritty. She tried not to put the brush in her mouth if she could help it. After just a few days, boss asked her if she would like to quit since she clearly didn't like the work. May agreed and left the factory. Although she was only there for a few days, in her life she suffered with bad teeth, migraines and two bouts of cancer, although it was never clear if these were linked to radium poisoning. May Keane died in 2015, aged 107 years old. As early as 1927, employees in Illinois began asking for compensation for their medical and dental bills, but they were refused by management. Radium Dial was reacting to the news of the USRC's downfall very badly. Although the firm's medical tests were proving that the women were suffering from radium poisoning too, they lied about the results. It placed a full-page ad in the local paper stating, quote, 
if we at any time had reason to believe that any conditions of the work endangered the health of our employees, we would at once have suspended operations, end quote. It reported that in order to hush up the scandal, the girls' autopsies were being interfered with and radium-riddled bones were stolen. But the women were getting ill and dying painfully. If they didn't suffer with the same jaw problems like in New Jersey, they had huge cancerous tumours on their bones called sarcomas that would grow anywhere on their bodies. One dial painter named Irene Laporte died from a pelvic tumour that was said to be larger than two footballs. In 1938, Catherine Wolfe developed a grapefruit-like tumour on her hip. She lost her teeth and she had to pick pieces of her jawbone out of her mouth. She would carry a handkerchief so she could try to absorb the seepage. Following on from Grace, Catherine started her fight in the mid-30s. At this point, America was in the grip of the Great Depression and Catherine and the ladies fighting alongside her were shunned from their communities, pursuing a firm that was paying very well despite what was going on. When her case went to court, Catherine ignored her doctor's advice and gave evidence from her deathbed. Leonard Grossman, who was representing her pro bono, won justice for her and for workers everywhere. In 1937, he brought the suit before the Illinois Industrial Commission. But by this time, Radium Dial had closed before moving to New York. The IIC did manage to retain a $10,000 deposit from Radium Dial when they disclosed that they could not find insurance to cover the cost of indemnifying the company against employee claims. In spring 1938, the IIC ruled in favour of the women. Although the attorney for Radium Dial appealed, the commission judge again found in favour of the women. But the women didn't get their payout. Radium Dial kept on with the appeal process, taking the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Unfortunately for them, on October 23, 1939, the court decided not to hear the appeal and upheld the lower ruling. By the time the case was finally closed and Radium Dial had paid out on the money owed, the case had been won eight times by the women. And all they was wanting was money to help pay medical bills because they could not work. It's shocking. Robley D. Evans made the first measurements of exhaled radon and radium excretion from a former dial painter in 1933. At MIT, he gathered dependable body content measurements from 27 dial painters. The National Bureau of Standards used this information to establish the tolerance level for radium. The Center of Human Radiobiology was established in 1968 to primarily provide medical examinations for living dial painters. They collected information and in some cases tissue samples. When the project ended in 1993, detailed information of 2,403 cases had been collected. A book was written discussing the effects of radium on humans, including the induction of a range of different forms of cancer as a result of internal exposure to radium and its nuclides. The media sensation and litigation that followed the case established legal precedents and triggered late birth safety standards and regulations, including a baseline of provable suffering. 
the Occupational Disease Labour Law was established and remaining radium dial painters were now being instructed in proper safety precautions and provided with protective gear. They were no longer allowed to lick the paintbrushes to avoid ingesting or breathing in the paint. Radium paint was still being used on dials in the 1970s. Deborah Blum, author of The Poisoner's Handbook, states that the radium girls had a profound impact in workplace regulations as by the time World War II came around, the federal government had set basic safety limits for handling radiation. She also says there are still lessons to be learned to protect people who work with new untested substances. Quote, we really don't want our factory workers to be the guinea pigs for discovery. Oops, is never good occupational health policy. End quote. The Radium Girls' case is an important step in the history of health physics and the labour rights movement. Because of the girls, individuals now have the right to sue for damages from corporations due to labour abuse. Since then, industrial safety standards were severely enhanced for many decades. This case really grips me because of how unfair it was. These girls were just young girls trying to bring in some money so that they could start to build a life after living with their parents as children. They wanted to become independent. There was a war they was wanting to help out because their brothers, husbands, fathers, uncles, they'd all gone to war and the girls wanted to help out. They were so happy to have found such a well-paid job and to them it was easy. They was just painting on a dial. They wasn't having to use heavy machinery. It seemed like a dream job and the people behind the companies knew from day one about the dangers of radium and the radiation and they never helped. In fact, they hid behind paid for studies that would publish anything they wanted them to say. They was paying off professionals that was finding out that these girls were being eaten from the inside by radiation and they did nothing to help them they smeared these girls these girls must have been so hurt they was facing an agonizing death they was fighting for the right to have the companies pay for their medical bills that they wouldn't have had to pay for otherwise they wouldn't have been, if they'd have been in a normal factory job, they wouldn't have had these massive medical bills. And not only that, when they found out that they didn't have long left to live, they then was worried about the funeral costs. They didn't want to leave their families with bills to be paid, debts to be paid. They wanted a chance to leave something behind. And these girls, didn't just achieve getting their bills paid for and their funerals paid for. They managed to fight against these massive corporations and win and show you cannot step over the little man. So we mustn't forget the Radium Girls. They stood to bring down giant firms that didn't care for their workers. And like I said before, 
they did it when they were dying an agonizing slow death. And while they were having whispers and slurs thrown at them. And even now, they tell their story. For you see, radium has a half-life of 1,600 years. So the radium girls are still glowing in their forever sleep. another episode done guys we really hope you are enjoying listening to us if you would be so kind we would love for you to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating five stars if you wish which helps us to get our name out there and to be seen by a bigger audience so until the next episode bye